everybody. I'm Peter McMillan, the CEO at NT Shelter. Welcome to another episode of Sharing the Couch. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting today from the land of the Larrakia people here in Darwin. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to emerging leaders, and to all other First Nations people who might be watching on or listening into this podcast. A very warm welcome to you all. Now, for those of you who are watching today and thinking, well, what's happening at a national level in terms of representation of First Nations people when it comes to housing? Some of you may not be aware, but we're very pleased to announce that we have a national uh, peak body. So today we're going to be talking to Ivan Simon, the president of Natsia, about what that's all about and what they're looking to achieve. Um, so first of all, a little bit about um, Ivan. Ivan Simon is the president of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Housing Association, or NATSIA. Ivan was born in Sydney and was raised at La Perouse. His mother and her people belong to the Ewan Nation, located on the far south coast of New South Wales, and she was born at Milton and was raised at Tilba Tilba and Wallaga Lake. Ivan's father belongs to the Warumi people on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, and he was born and raised on the Aboriginal village at Foster. Ivan was educated at La Perouse Public School and Matraville High School, having achieved the Intermediate Certificate in Third Form, as it was known then. Ivan worked in the New South Wales and Australian Public Service from 1980 until mid-2013, where he decided to take a significant and important new employment direction, desiring to work specifically with Aboriginal communities and community organisations. Ivan has been specifically involved and provided leadership at all levels with policy development, program planning and implementation and capacity building within government and community. He worked in a New South Wales and Australian government public service for over 34 years in areas such as public and social housing, juvenile justice, family and community services and hostel accommodation for Aboriginal people. Ivan is involved with many organisations and initiatives, particularly with the Kiranari student hostels as the president of the Aboriginal Children's Advancement Society or ACAS. His involvement with ACAS, ACAS commenced around 1990 and he's continued in that capacity since then. Ivan has also been awarded the Public Services Medal for Outstanding Service. Ivan is committed to improving the living circumstances and general well-being of his people and it's a very warm welcome to you Ivan. Thank you for joining us on the program. Oh, thanks Peter. I feel a bit tired after that intro. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to shorten it down in future, eh? a little bit too long. I just might need to summarise it, but thanks thanks very much for that warm uh, welcome and introduction. And I come to you from um, our uh, newly opened head office in Cogra in Sydney, New South Wales, and we're on digital land of the Eora Nation. And I also welcome uh, all of my fellow uh, First Nations people that uh, could be... Uh, watching it today, as well as all of our other friends and, and family of the social housing system um, that are watching it today. And uh, I'm very pleased and honoured uh, that I've been asked to do it. And so... Um, Thank you, great. Ivan. Thank you, Ivan. It's very much our pleasure to have you on, our privilege. Um, I'd just like to start off, I mentioned in the introduction uh, that you grew up in um, around La Perouse in that area in, in Sydney, and, and some, I guess, some of us will remember from history about the significance of La Perouse, but I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, you're, um, you grew up in a, in a big family, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about where you're from? Yeah, well, I guess some, some people um, might never know um, La Perouse actually, Peter. I find that in some of the talks that I do. So I have to point out to them that it's on the peninsula of Botany Bay um, uh, in New South Wales. It's directly opposite where Captain Cook landed. And it's interesting to note that um, uh, had there not been bad seas around that time when Captain Cook landed, uh, Captain La Perouse could have uh, jumped into Botany Bay before Captain Cook. Um, they were all sailing the seas at that time and um, and Captain La Perouse was um, uh, coming from um, the islands uh, further east and um, and he had to um, anchor a fair way out uh, side of Botany Bay uh, because of bad seas and he stayed out there for a few days and um, Captain Cook beat him into Botany Bay by about six days or something. So it was fairly close. Um, and, and of course, um, uh, the suburb was named after Captain LaBruise, where I, where I grew up. And he, he actually has a, um, a monument there uh, uh, that uh, forms a major part of um, uh, celebrations on Bastille's Day. Um, uh, that includes the, the, the France's ambassador, um, who's located in uh, in Sydney, um, uh, and um, and he participates in it uh, every year. The ambassador, which is which is great, um, and the school that I went to, La Perouse School, obviously, um, we weren't a lot weren't allowed to practice a lot of our cultural um, uh, issues and. Um, celebrations um but we had to um uh, celebrate certain things i, I guess um yeah, in respect of the colonization of, of of a country um as well as on bastille's day well we were taught all through the year to sing france's national anthem and i guess most of us could sing it backwards yeah, you know <laughs> and yeah and we i did not Sorry. know that I did not know that, you know, I, I used to live up in Randwick uh, for a couple of years and I used to get down to Maruba and, and La Perouse occasionally. It's a beautiful part of Sydney down there, but I had no idea that it was uh, had such a high French influence to the extent. Incredible. Well, if you if you go down there, particularly in the warmer months, you, you have to get down there before the sun comes up to get a parking spot out there. It's extremely popular. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, we, we used to march from the school down to, um, and with all respect, and we still, just, they still do it as I understand it, uh, respectfully, as well as, um, uh, uh, as you know, we join in, Aboriginal people join into the majority of celebrations around this, uh, great country, but, um, uh, one of the contentious issues, I guess, is, um, celebrating Australia Day, which I hope this country will, at some stage, uh, look at it more seriously, and and um, as far as personally I'm concerned, I, I guess we could should all celebrate it on another date, um, and so we can all join and and celebrate uh, what this uh, great country that we all share together and what it can give us. So, um, but that, it was interesting times. I grew up in a, um, a, a street called Tasman Street, which is just off the Aboriginal uh, Reserve out at La Perouse. And um, and as you indicated, um, 
uh, on my mother's side, on the Stuart side of the family. We're from the far south coast of New South Wales, the Ewan people. Um, and uh, a lot of our people, due to the government policies of the day and for different sorts of reasons, uh, whether it be uh, getting exemptions off reserves to gain employment, to get a better life for our people, um, or uh, escaping, for want of a better term, off the village down at, at, at uh, Wallaga Lake uh, to protect your children, because uh, as, as most people would be aware, the policies of the day in terms of um, separating children from their families, um, I guess they say with all good intent of protecting our kids from uh, whatever, and, um, and of course a lot of our people escaped overnight in the middle of the night off reserves and missions to try and um, and protect and, and keep their kids in the family. And so our our, our, um, our family, the men in our family, worked mainly in timber mills um, or uh, and the women worked in um, on farms around down the far south coast picking peas and beans and all those sorts of things, and I think they still do it a, a, a lot. And... Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, uh, my pop's family and that moved up and finished up for some time. They went north of Sydney for a little while, even stretched as far as Kempsey, where we still have family members up there. Uh, but they came back to Sydney and and and, and finished up uh, down, uh, as I said, we all grew up. We had about four of our families um, in Tasman Street um, and... Um, and, and we grew up there and we've been out there for over 90 years now. So we're probably regarded as um, close enough to traditional owners in that area um, as you could be. Um, uh, but I'm also, uh, we're, we also link to the far south coast as well. And um, we, we participate in, um, in joint management of two national parks down on the south coast of Biomanga and Gulliga National Parks. And we sit on boards down there. I do that. I actually just spent the weekend down there uh, in a traditional owner meeting and uh, elections, and uh, I went down with all good intent to to um, uh, vacate my spot on the board and give it to a younger person, but um, the younger people pulled rank and said, "No, we still need you on there as an elder." So, mm -hmm. um, but it's uh, you know, I guess a lot of people might see a lot of doom and gloom around at the moment, but there's a lot of great things happening as well, and it's it's good to talk about those as well. Absolutely, and Ivan, just in terms of I guess myself being a, a non-Aboriginal person, um, in terms of connection to country, you mentioned some of that country where you grew up and that you still have that connection to today. What what does that mean to you in terms of having that sense of place and and connection, ongoing connection with country and and just I'm just interested from your personal story with your family and you mentioned different parts of New South Wales there. What to you does that mean? I guess today. Well, it's really important. I guess um, um, it's interesting to note um, years ago that we um, before uh, we're talking about a referendum now. I, I guess before. Um, uh, a referendum some years ago, we were regarded as flora and fauna, mm -hmm. which is part of Mother Earth, I guess, and it's it, it's Mother Earth that, that really connects us all together. Uh, and if you can uh, picture and you can actually see our uh, new branding, uh, that is about the connection that we all have with each other in each state and territory. 
and and those white lines you see through there, they're the songs and the celebrations that connect us all together uh, in a very important way. Um, I guess government over the years, uh, especially in the earlier days of colonisation, just thought that we're all one people and all had one language uh, and we all um, uh, work together, but it's quite quite the opposite. Uh, we have all that thousands and thousands of different dialects and and and, and different um, cultural activities and and the not. Um, of course, being uh, being brought up on the eastern seaboard, my 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 uh, bush tucker, so to speak, is a little bit different than it might be in the centre of Australia, I guess. Mm. Uh, uh, and um, but but even but even the the, the 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 artwork and things like that are all different as well, and 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 the storylines may have a lot of similarities, but but that strong connection to land uh, and belonging um, and spiritual and culturally is is quite strong, and that's probably the thing that's kept us all going, in spite of different well-being policies and programs that are delivered. Uh, don't uh, always get the the appropriate outcome that suits our people's needs in the short, medium, and longer term. Yeah, no, definitely, and we'll talk a bit more about that as we as we progress. Uh, so, when you left school, how did what was your story in terms of ending up working in the public service? How did that come about? And was that what? How did, yeah, I'm curious as to whether that was an opportunity that you that you were really keen to pursue or look, were looking for, or whether there were some other circumstances where you managed to get into that line of work. It was interesting because um, we we um, I went to Matraville High School as you indicated, um, and it was a fairly new school actually. And uh, strangely, or not strangely enough, it's located directly opposite another institution, but it's a different type of one. It's Long Bay Jail. Yes, <laughs> and unfortunately, some of the people at, at our high school, their matriculation was across the road. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, but thankfully it wasn't for me. But um, I, I, I grabbed that opportunity that was provided to me actually by the principal of the school, uh, Mr. Mobbs, and he had a very strong commitment way back then to helping our people. Um, and and um, uh, he offered the opportunity to quite a few of us, and um, and I grabbed it, and um, he arranged. Um, uh, for me to sit for the exam. Um, uh, the head office of the Department of Motor Transport was at Rosebury at the time. Um, I never went that far for, for holidays, let alone uh, to sit for an exam, but I got there uh, one way or another and sat for it and um, it's all history now. And um, and I, um, they were way back then, they were, um, modernising their filing system to um, computer cards uh, and so on. So my, my first several months was filing all those cards and throwing at the old system. And I had cuts and bruises all over my fingertips from the sharpness of the cards. But um, the other thing, I guess, I, I spent, um, I was there for under two years and I spent most of that time trying to find another Aboriginal person in the department, mm. but I couldn't, um, I couldn't find in, in, any there. Um, that wasn't the main reason I left, I guess. It was difficult for me to get there from La Perouse. I had to catch a couple of buses and stuff back in the day. Um, and um, 
Yeah, and I guess, uh, yeah, I, I unfortunately left it for a few years, and that, but that was a great start. It gave me that introduction to working in an office, a little Aboriginal kid from La Perouse working in a in a government department and office. It uh, was quite interesting. And um, but my my nan Muriel Pearl Stewart Nee Cooley, um, she she was the one that really guided me. She was actually because of the large family that we had. She actually. Uh, played a major role in, in in my upbringing as well, living just across the road, and um, and um, she she back in and she was actually the first um, uh, justice of the peace in New South Wales. Actually, um, they were actually named a street after my nan in Canberra wow. um, because she sat on um, on uh, um, on government um, committees, um, advisory committees way back then. Uh, to try and make a difference. And I guess you could probably say that I've followed very much in her footsteps. Sounds like she was a remarkable uh, woman. And and I, I learned also recently, Ivan, I didn't re that really quite dawn on me, but just the extent to which um, Aboriginal aunties and uncles have such an important part to play in bringing up the kids too, you know. It's not all just about the, the model the mum and dad does it all, you know. It's often that broader family that has such a pivotal role on on guiding um, and, I guess, teaching and mentoring the kids as they're growing up too. That sounds like that was the case with your auntie. And we're still doing that today, as you, you might get reference to extended family. It's the real sense of extended family. It it's never ends. So I guess that's the, the push in government policy at the moment around... Um, uh, the the uh, uh, separation of our children and and, and trying to uh, reconnect back into family and um, foster caring programs and I well, we've been doing that um, since day dot you know that we've been uh, if there's any issues or challenges in 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 a family household that um, uh, other people step up to the plate to help uh, uh, and and that's that's part of the culture an important part I guess. Yeah, no, for sure. And how did you find yourself in the housing space for the first time? Because you, you started off in juvenile justice and family and community services, didn't you, I think? And then how did you how did you get well, into well, well when I when I left the Department of Motor Transport, I did a range of um uh different uh, jobs, labouring jobs, and that strangely enough, uh, a major one was chemical mixing and and I have to say, you might find this interesting. I, I failed in science every year of the three years I was in high school, and I finished up mixing chemicals that went overseas and, and testing them and, and all that sort of stuff. And I did that right up until about 1980. Um, then I was provided an opportunity under a Commonwealth. Um, it was called NEAT NISA. It was uh, that was the acronym, and it was a, a Commonwealth program. Um, not not the same as CDP, but very much a one that where you had to be guaranteed a job at the end of it. Otherwise, you never received the subsidies to employ and train an Aboriginal person. And that was with Aboriginal Hostels Limited, which is a national body. And that's where my real journey started in, into public administration, I guess. Um, the, 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 the role in the Department of Housing, uh, Motor Transport was just a um, short introductory to it, but I, um, I knew um, my role wasn't really in in in, in those labouring positions, and um, 
So I started that journey and spent nearly 11 years with Aboriginal hostels. And it was, um, and it was, uh, I, I would have to say, um, it was one of the best uh, organisations for training Aboriginal people that I've experienced. And that's where I picked up a lot of my management skills as well. I completed um, um, my role with them back in 1990 um, as the New South Wales Regional Manager. Um, and just after that, um, for a short period, for about 18 months or so, I was the National Nuts and Bolts um, Training Officer. So all I right. went around all the states and territories and trained the house parents and hostel managers and whatever. So that was the real sounding ground for, for the development of my skills and where I wanted to be um, uh, further on. And then, of course, that... Um, um, after I uh, left Aboriginal Hostels Limited, uh, I wanted to um, experience some other things and um, and I went into the Department of Community Services, um, which was interesting, um, particularly uh, as a community program officer, not necessarily a uh, coalface service um, support person um, uh, with uh, child protection um, and... Um, and unfortunately, they had a major restructure, and I think they've been in restructure mode ever since back in in those uh, 90, early 1990s. And um, uh, I, I did a very short stint helping out a friend uh, who was a CPO for juvenile justice back when I was with um, Docs um, as a CPO. And he, he actually progressed on to be the Director General of the department. Oh, really? <laughs> well, we were part... We were part of the Illawarra region, and um, and we sat next to each other, and and um, and he finished up the director general of that department, and um, and he's still a great friend uh, of mine, and, uh, and 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 so that um, yeah, so it wasn't very long. I I just helped out out there, and um, and then a position uh, came available. I noticed in housing. I don't know what directed me there, Peter, specifically. I just saw it and I thought, well, maybe that might be something for me. And and that um, in in those very early nineteen nineties is where my journey really started in um, in housing. Excellent. Well, well, we'll come back to that, Ivan. I just want to pause it there and go back a little bit, just if we can, just to the time at Aboriginal Hostels Limited. I'm, it was great to hear what a, a positive impact that had from a training and professional development perspective. Uh, that's really that's really great to hear. What were some of your what are some of the memories you have today from that job? You've been all around the country. You would have no doubt come to the territory and other places, um, looking at a whole range of different communities and um, and and hostels. What were some of the things that stand out from that time? Have you got any special memories? Well, I, I still, they're not necessarily memories, actually, because um, the, the, you mentioned about the Aboriginal Children's Advancement Society, ACAS, which I'm still involved with, um, and, the, and the, in New South Wales, we, mostly, our most uh, uh, activity is, uh, and uh, our relationship continues with Aboriginal hostels because we sublease hostel, the Kirinari hostels to Aboriginal Hostels Limited, and they provide accommodation for secondary students uh, wanting to better their education where they either can't get it in their localities or they need to move away for other other, other reasons. And so uh, I get uh, enormous satisfaction out of um, the achievements that we get from 
the, the, the people that uh, have the students that have come through there. In fact, it's a bit scary. Um, one of the students at the Kirinari Sylvania Hostel is, is the grandchild of a, a female student that was in a hostel that I ran some years ago over at Lambie Heights. So, wow. um, that's the third generation. Um, um, so I'm still involved in that, but um, in that um, role as the um, uh, national training uh, um, manager, um, you see all different types of categories of, of hostels, transient, medical, people coming into town for legal, and they, and they pay. Uh, it, it's a very important service that they provide to our people, it's all temporary accommodation. There isn't uh, any permanent um, uh, uh, ability there for people to stay in it uh, long-term, but certainly in the short, medium term, they provide uh, great accommodation. And it's really the satisfaction that I do get from those secondary student hostels. Some of them come there at year seven and stay there to year 12. Wow. And in fact, in fact, in, in, in uh, Aboriginal Children's Advancement Society are looking at uh, providing support. We're right now looking at providing support where in inverted commas life after Kirinari. So we're working in the Sutherland Shire, interesting enough. Um, uh, the council has that. Captain Cook is their emblem. <laughs> we scared the hell out of him one time and we said, you need to take it off, it's offending us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that didn't happen, but that, it certainly scared the wits out of them. But we have a good relationship with the Southern Child Council uh, and, and what we're trying to do there. But, um, but yeah, we're now looking at providing not only just uh, uh, um, development, uh, personal development opportunities while they're in the hostel, but mm. out of that and linking to them to employment uh, and, and the like. So, um, so you get a lot of satisfaction out of out of out of um, people that were involved in in that, and some great people have been through there, um, both hostels in Sydney and Newcastle. So. Yeah, that's probably the the biggest satisfaction I got out of that um, part of my life, uh, which con continues on. That's wonderful. It's, it's special that it does continue on, isn't it? It's not it's not a distant memory. It's a part of the part of your day to day life still. So it's, that's terrific. Ivan, can I just you did mention in the early nineties you decided you had that opportunity to go into housing and 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 you decided that's what what you wanted to do and and you worked with the Department of Housing or the Office of Housing Policy for a number of years. Can you take us through a little bit about what you learned in that time? And, and I guess because it, nowadays you're still working in that space of housing. So, so can you help us understand a little bit about why housing really resonated with you, what it was about it that, that felt that was, that was an area where you wanted to be? Um, it's, it's an interesting story, really, because I, 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 I went there uh, without any knowledge of uh, housing, of course. But I also went spec bang in the middle of um, the impact of um, an in industry commission report that was quite scathing on um, the way that um, uh, New South Wales Department of Housing were operating, in particular around procurement, uh, construction, uh, and, and those sorts of things. Um, and the the um, and that was quite scathing. The New South Wales government of the day, um, and I think the Premier was John Fay, but uh, my memory serves me correctly, but whoever it was, um, 
they did their own um, review of that report uh, and they commissioned John Mead to do that review. Uh, and out of that, um, whilst it, 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 um, there were quite serious things that had to be done, the whole uh, top floor, I guess, of um, the Department of Housing um, got shown the door, basically, uh, including the head of the department uh, and so on. So, um, and um, the then um, Director General of Planning uh, was given the responsibility of jointly uh, looking after the Department of Housing. Her name was Gabrielle Kibble. Um, and we had a, um, uh, uh, um, a manager of our um, area of operation, which included community housing, uh, uh, Aboriginal housing, um, it was Vivian Milligan. Uh, who most people would would know. Um, so those two ladies were um, obviously uh, part of the government's approach to reform a whole range of things in in uh, as a consequence of that industry commission report and the John Mant report. Um, and and um, uh, a number of things happened, but uh, including the establishment of the um, Office of Housing Policy, which they placed um, Aboriginal community housing, uh, as well as the funding responsibilities, the policy responsibilities, and a range of other things into the what was formed as the um, Office of Housing Policy. Um, so uh, we physically moved out of there um, to a couple of locations and finished up in Governor Macquarie Tower um, via the AMP building, which was great because I had an office that had fantastic views there, but I went up a few floors when we moved to the, uh, the, uh, the Governor Macquarie Tower, but all I looked at was another brick building. <laughs> but uh, but um, but that that was the opportunity, um, and, and and our manager back at the, uh, when I first went to um, the Department of Housing was Elaine Sloan Lomas, and um, she had some very creative ideas on where she thought um, uh, Aboriginal housing should go into the future, and we had a bit of a workshop back then as well, which fitted in neatly neatly to the reform agenda of housing, um, where. Um, uh, and and this name would ring a bell to a lot of people because she's very much uh, in Canberra doing a lot of things around um, uh, other things. But Jennifer Westercott was one of the managers of housing, and Jennifer facilitated a little internal workshop with the Aboriginal staff, which uh, drew a bit of a picture of where we'd like to see more independence of the the Aboriginal housing sector. And of course. Um, we didn't have a big sector back then. We had lands councils, of course, but um, all of the program funds from the Commonwealth uh, went to departmental stock to a specific program called the Aboriginal uh, Housing for Aboriginal Program, HFA Homes, as we referred to them back then. Um, but that progression to reform, which led to the establishment of the AHR back in 1998, was quite significant. And that, and that was because those two ladies and uh, we had a structure um, of um, uh, an advisory structure called the Aboriginal Housing Development Committee, um, which people like Tom Schlocky, Jerry Moore and a range of others were part of and are still, well, certainly Tom Schlocky is very much part of 
uh, what we're doing at the moment, given that he's recently, late last year, become our chairperson of Natsia. So, um, so that was a really important part of our reform and the establishment, which led to the establishment of um, the New South Wales Aboriginal Housing Office back in 1998. And for those that um, may not be aware, how does the New South Wales Aboriginal Housing Office fit in with the New South Wales government? Is it a statutory authority or a, or a part of the it's a, it's a statutory authority. Um, um, as I mentioned, uh, community housing was also um, uh, part of that reform agenda. And, um, and of course, it continues to reform as... as uh, our good people um, on the lawn would know that, um, but the community housing at that particular stage went for a reform that just um, required an administrative sign-up at a strategic level, but we decided that we wanted to get it in legislation, so it was going to be harder to dismantle. Um, so we took a bit more time to do it. Um, um, and as well, uh, back then, um, ATSIC uh, was around the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission um, as a federal body, uh, which had regional councils in each state and territory, but also had a board of rep, uh, made up of representatives from each state and territory uh, as well. Uh, but the challenge to us around getting legislation through for the Aboriginal, uh, the Aboriginal Housing Office, uh, the challenge the government gave us was you needed to pool all the funds that came from the state and the Commonwealth. Um, and I, I think they didn't think we'd succeed. So we had to go around to each of the regional councils in New South Wales uh, and get their buy-in um, uh, to the concept of establishing through legislation this body that would be this single stream of funding, Pacific funding for Aboriginal housing. So that meant that the regional councils had to forego their responsibilities um, for their programs that they had. And that, 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 wasn't, that was a very tough decision for them to make. Uh, but fast forwarding, I guess they, they finished up um, benefiting because they, uh, each of the regional council chairs became um, part of our new board of our new structure of the AHL. So they were actually then party to a bigger pool of funds that they were making decisions on at a state level. So, but it was tough going, I have to say, going saying, around. It. Sounds like a massive achievement. And I know with uh, those names you mentioned before, uh, Vivian Mulligan and um, Jennifer Westacott, there's some pretty big names. They must have had a fair bit of nails to be able to get that through government as well and into legislation. It would have been quite a journey. Um, I'm going to just, I'm, I'm really interested uh, in the Northern Territory. We have our own context, obviously, but I, uh, and you attended a conference recently in Darwin and, and the, um, it was around Aboriginal housing in Aboriginal hands. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to understand from your perspective the legacy the Aboriginal Housing Office might have had. And I could think also, you know, the establishment of Aboriginal community-controlled housing organisations in New South Wales and elsewhere. How do you see, what's to you, what does that mean? And what's the importance of having Aboriginal housing back in Aboriginal hands? Um, I don't know if you picked up that noise that there's building going on in there. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear it. Sorry, no, no. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Oh, that's that's good. Um, the the um, 
back in the, when I joined the Department of Housing, all the, as I mentioned that all of the programs, the tied programs from the Commonwealth State Housing Agreement were all public housing. Um, and we did have lands councils and they did have housing in, I'm talking about New South Wales specifically, and I get the Northern Territory shortly, but um, the, the, um, the, all of those missions and reserves under government policy in particular assimilation policies, the, the, the missions and reserves um, uh, had, the government had established the Aboriginal Lands Trust. And so all the control of those missions and reserves went over to the Lands Trust. And uh, fast forwarding to 1983, where the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Rights Act came into play, um, all those missions and reserves were transferred over to local lands councils. And that's where their portfolio uh, started from. Uh, and of course, there were Aboriginal Welfare Board properties all around the state as well. Uh, but what, what we did in 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 um, in the Office of Housing Policy or the Department of Housing before that, even notwithstanding those um, reports that were done and the reform they were going ahead with, um, uh, the program, the TIDE program, was opened up uh, initially to local lands councils, so they were actually able to get. Um, new supply and repairs and maintenance from the Aboriginal Rental Housing Program tied funds. And then a couple of years later, because that TIC used to fund corporations, they didn't fund lands councils necessarily, but they funded corporations. So corporations became part of the program. And of course, um, over the years, um, programs have come and gone. Uh, and over more recent years, um, the lack of new supply programs right across our provider system has been um, uh, fairly minimal. Uh, and so that in itself has been not only just a major uh, concern around the high levels of uh, homelessness and overcrowding, but even uh, trying to achieve sustainability within our sector because of the scale, the, the low scale of properties that they have and the, the income yield obviously from simple things like uh, rents and stuff has become fairly, fairly challenging. And that's one of the challenges that through NATSIA that we're hoping to, um, um, you know, uh, sort out over time to see what the best approach is to, to that. Um, so in the Northern Territory, that conference, I thought was a fantastic conference. Uh, it did, um, and we we had uh, a, a specific meeting with uh, the um, uh, housing providers in the Northern Territory, including those large lands councils. We had uh, a special day for that at the end of the conference. But the conference did did reinforce um, uh, the concerns that we have around uh, remote uh, communities in the territory and and some that are outside of the territory, obviously, because they. Well, given that they're remote, have, have have the same challenges, and in particular, there was a focus there on homelands, which we found extremely interesting but concerning. Um, and hopefully, that um, uh, the Commonwealth and and and, and the Territory Government, and, and well, not so much hopefully, we're getting good um, uh, um, signs that uh, they're going to be addressed. Over time, I guess, and the important part of that is addressing it with the people, not for the people. So the inclusion of those providers in that system and a hand 
uh, and with support from, I guess, organisations like the shelters and chairs and stuff like that, that we can actually get a better bang for the buck in in how they deliver these programs. Because I think um, uh, history will say that we, we're not uh, achieving the yields and the outcomes that we should, because I think there's far too many players in the system. So you mentioned, Ivan, the formation. We mentioned Matsia. Can you tell us a bit about the formation of Matsia? How that came about, and maybe that's part of the transition from you out of government into the working community uh, services uh, sector as well, and directly with Aboriginal communities. But what was what? How was the formation of Matsia? How did that come about? I know there's you, you've had obviously there's there's closing the gap, and there's a national congress and a Redfern statement and other key milestones in the, over the last say seven or eight years. But what was the journey for the establishment of the national peak body? The um, years ago, I forget what year it was, but certainly when ATSIC was formed, that that they they through ATSIC they attempted to establish a national peak, and for a whole lot of different reasons, the, the, it didn't uh, it didn't uh, eventuate, um, uh, and um, and so it just uh, it was just left um, for years. Um, I, I uh, National Congress um, uh, asked me to help with uh, a few things um, when they were uh, it was tour the latter part of their um, their existence. But um, one of the things I I was happy to assist with uh, uh, um, was that um, uh, they identified through that Redfin statement that. Um, uh they didn't uh, there were two areas of priority where there wasn't a peak body uh one was housing obviously the other was education uh and and it was um a meeting that was held at redfin and that's why it's referred to as a redfin statement where they were gathering before an election actually and it was actually on the site where the then prime minister paul keating made some very strong statements about the levels of disadvantage faced by our people and the importance that housing had for that. Uh, and so uh, I, I said to National Congress, I, I, you know, that's one of the things that I'd be really keen to to progress. Uh, and the then minister, actually, it was from the Territory, uh, Minister Scullion at the time, um, resourced National Congress to have a, a gathering uh, and we had it in Adelaide, actually, uh, and there is a report on that as well. But we had a, a lot of key people, including National Shelter and, and the like, uh, and government and community at that um, uh, workshop. And it identified quite a number of issues, concerns and priorities. And we've taken forward all of those. Um, and it's been a tough journey because... Um, uh, it wasn't all that long after that National Congress was abolished by um, the Australian government. And so uh, myself and and, and um, uh, an officer that was working for National Congress, Greg Slab, we, we just uh, made a commitment to ourselves that we would continue on with those priorities that were identified in that Adelaide workshop. Uh, and we've progressed those and we've had different support from different people along the way. Um, including um, uh, support to uh, do a submission to the Close the Gap re Refresh 
um, and and a couple of other inquiries. Um, so we've been consistent all the way along, and I've been uh, I had uh, meetings myself with Greg and I just were volunteers, I guess, uh, for the concept. Uh, we had a committee formed from the Adelaide workshop. Uh, and they were all from different states and territories, some of which are still with us on this journey. Others have uh, gone to different um, um, uh, areas of work and priority. Um, but uh, th that journey has been um, growing and growing and growing, and we've been meeting with them to the extent where they've um, we, we got incorporated um, in 2020, uh, in, in, in December 2020, and we... Um, and then we got funding after that. Um, and then around the same time, um, our journey uh, with the Coalition of Peaks under the National Agreement started. That's wonderful, Ivan. I mean, are you? did you have to do that all off your own bat? I mean, was this in addition to your day job or this was a day job? You... I did have a day job um, yeah. as well. Um, at that stage, I was working uh, uh, in an organisation in New South Wales that... Um, provided um, uh, tenants with adv advocacy, advice and support. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I was I was working with them, but I used to uh, go over to Canberra on, on, on other days and and stuff. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, I, I finished up working um, um, three days a week with them, and which gave me a bit more time to put um, a bit more effort into the establishment of Natsia. Well, congratulations, Ivan. That's great work from you and Greg to be able to, to continue that um, that idea and that passion continuing and to continue to, I guess, oversee that work and those priorities from that conference in, in Adelaide. Um, because, as you say, yeah, a lot of the, you know, with the abolition of Congress and that, it would have been easy for all that to go nowhere and for that momentum to stop. But for the fact that you've been passionate, you and Greg have decided to continue on to the point where you're now funded, which is which is brilliant. And I guess that probably leads um, sensibly to the next kind of area around, well, what are you looking to achieve at Natsia? And and who is, who is Natsia? I know you've got some staff and you're recruiting some staff, which is wonderful. But what are the things you're looking to to do at Natsia at the moment? I guess one of the primary reasons for uh, us uh, getting resourced, uh, and that is uh, particularly since ATSIC um, and, and then National Congress, but probably more so ATSIC because ATSIC had a structure of um, elected people that formed the regional councils. They had administrative um, support uh, around those regional councils. They had regional offices of um, bureaucrats and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so housing was only just one part of their responsibility. They, they carried responsibility um, for other areas. And bearing in mind that, and it was always stated, and we still state it today, that the program and the funds that uh, are given through like organisations like um, uh, ATSIC um, and even NATSIA, uh, although we're not um, um, program managers uh, necessarily, um, but they're all supplementary to the mainstream system that should be providing appropriate access um, to, to our um, communities and our people. And, and, and that's one of the things that Natsia hopefully is going to be able to do, not, not just about monitoring uh, the outcomes, but also helping. And that's why we have a strong relationship with the mainstream community housing sector as well, or in particular, 
is helping them uh, because our people should be provided options um, on housing support. Um, having said that, um, uh, from our experience, the majority of our people would like to be managed by their own organisations. Hence, we need to work with the government under their new arrangements around HAF and, and things that that uh, our community organisations um, uh, are provided with um, uh, resources uh, to maintain their properties in appropriate condition, but also get new supply programs. Um, but we, we, one of the major things that we have been able to convince the government is we will be the conduit through our structures that are, you know, we're, we're establishing um, peak bodies um, um, in their own right jurisdictionally, with, uh, and, that, and they're doing that through the relevant um, jurisdictional government, which is great, but they are linked to us um, formally on the board and so on. So, so they will develop their own conduits for engagement with our sector and our communities, and we will work with those structures then to provide from a strategic point of view um, an avenue for government to 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 get that advice and that and it's we've made it very clear that for us it's a bottom up approach not a top down approach around those conduits for engagement and and um, and we are um, optimistic that um, they are government are hearing uh, us although we're trying to pay catch up with a lot of current uh, initiatives um, that the current government are trying to. Uh, implement, um, but um, we, we're very careful about not um, wanting to go too fast, too soon on, on certain things. And if it means that we have to let go and miss out on some of those programs, so be it, uh, rather than us um, uh, um, getting the wrong product or getting inappropriate input from, from our people. And of course, the current debate about a voice to parliament is is around uh, those strong principles that are enshrined in the national agreement for closing the gap around our people having a genuine say and influence on uh, where things what, what what's happening and not happening absolutely and um probably good time just to mention nt shelter board has only just recently uh, also um, decided to strongly support the voice to parliament as well we recognise the importance of the voice. And I guess just in terms of the voice that Natsia has, um, Ivan, um, you mentioned before the Coalition of Peaks and, and the work that is being done also through uh, closing the gap refresh and, and so forth. Um, so I guess where where is all of that at, the, at at the moment? We seem to be struggling in Australia to close the gap on, uh, on, on most of those measures, including housing. What do you think needs to change to really get some more movement? Um, to closing the gap on housing disadvantage for First Nations people? Well, as far as housing is concerned, I, I have been um, lobbying uh, across governments and across political parties that we need a, a minimum of 20, 30, maybe 40 years bipartisan approach. We can't expect to, to achieve um, appropriate, I'm not saying that means that we are achieving some, good positive outcomes, but it's very, very slow. Mainly from my point of view is because it's reliant upon the goodwill of governments and they come and go every political cycle, as you know, and bureaucrats for that matter. And and um, 
if the government's not changing at a federal level, it's changing one of the states and territories. And to try and achieve good outcomes within, a, I guess, the window of opportunity that you only get, which is about 12, 12 months, 14 months at best, to try and achieve something before they either go into an election or coming out of it. And how do you expect to do, do that when, obviously, the economic situation that we're all in in this country, although a lot of countries are a lot worse off than us, but there's a lot in front of us as well. But to achieve a, a, a you know a, a positive outcome, because housing is the and, and uh, through the the national agreement and the coalition peaks, they all acknowledge that uh, housing is the key thing that will make a difference to those other priority areas of social determinants that we're trying to achieve to reduce the levels of over serious overcrowding and homelessness and, and have appropriate housing, and that's appropriately designed housing as well as located housing, um, and, and appropriately designed in terms of the weather conditions and the climates and all that around our health and well-being is, is of critical importance, you know. So until we can make major inroads in that and not have to be at the whim of a new government and all that, I, I believe that's one of the critical things for us. But in the meantime, I guess, we have to find uh, and, uh, a ways to get the best outcome within the environment that we're seeing. So we're trying to, with the the hopefully the the legislation that we'll get through in the next sitting um, in in relation to half, that um, we're going to actually start a process of of, of getting some uh, consistent approaches to our states and territory needs around our um, housing organisations and our communities. Yeah, and Ivan, I'll just uh, also just uh, interested also to explore um, an interesting comment you made um, about the homeless, about the uh, Constellation project. It's up on their website, so it's it's out in out there. I just thought I'd mention this. So, you, and you were very frank about this. You said um, initially when you're invited to be part of that project, you, you, you wondered why would the private sector want to get involved in homelessness when the governments today in this day haven't been able to solve the problem. You said you've since been impressed with a level of commitment and dedication from all those individuals and organisations that are involved in the process. I've noticed a high level of professional and genuine and personal commitment to make a difference and impact on a very serious and ever-increasing situation, particularly of particularly for First Nations people of Australia. So I think uh, what I'd like just to follow up with that is um, how organisations can work with Aboriginal peak bodies like yourselves, like Aboriginal Housing MT or the other organisations in other states, how can we work together to make a difference here? Because it, I think it does require collaboration, doesn't it? We're not going to be able to solve this all on our own, are we? We're going to need to support each other. No, no, that, and that's and that's right. There's been a number of strategies over the years, and I could roll a few of them off. That, uh, but mainly, really, it's focused on better coordination and better cooperation and collaboration. And that's amongst everyone that, that 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 is trying to do that. The worst thing you can have is people um, not working together. And and um, and as I say, the the uh, the constellation project in particular demonstrated that. And in particular, it brought in the private sector and and other NGOs. And um, and I I was uh, yeah I, I wasn't sure of. <laughs> about it but again it was through national congress um, uh, that asked me to 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 be involved around around that housing side and i thought well 
what the hell does the private sector want to get into this area? <laughs> yet you're on a hiding to nothing, basically, because it's, as, as I said before, especially around Aboriginal housing, First Nations people, uh, that's very hard, hard to get a, a, you know, programs just come and go overnight virtually and, 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 and um, because they have to rush and get the money out the door before a certain point in time. Uh, that you you very rarely get the the outcome that you want. But I thought, well, uh, after a while, um, I was I was really uh, impressed with the the level of genuine um, commitment that uh, the private sector had with 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 um, the concept uh, under the constellation project to to really make a significant difference to the levels of homelessness over a decade. And I thought, well, gee, that's a that's a big ask, but they were really genuine and they have achieved a lot. And that's why I'm still uh, participating uh, in it. And I, and I believe that they don't carry the same levels of restrictions, I guess, that government and bureaucracy might have uh, in the way that they're trying to achieve similar outcomes. And so, um, yeah, so I'm still very much involved, and um, and will continue as long as as long as I can see that um, um, that they're genuine in what they're trying to do, and um, because we have seen a lot of goodwill people come and go in in trying to help our people, and um, and sometimes not all the time, but sometimes our people are left scarred by that approach, and so that's um, and the and, and the constellation project are quite sensitive to that. Well, that's that's great, and I've just I'd like to just finish by, um, I guess, casting us back to when you were a young a young lad in La Perouse again, and and you were um, finished getting finishing school. Did could you ever have imagined back then that you know so many years later you'd be in a key leadership role, uh, leading a national Aboriginal housing peak body and being a leader for your for your people. And, and I guess also just any comments you might have about young people, particularly young First Nations people, the, the importance of leadership and having a go and the difference they can make by, you know, you would have gone through periods where it was quite difficult when you said you were the only uh, Aboriginal person working in that government agency at Rosebury in those days. I mean, now here you are now uh, president of the National Housing, uh, National Housing Aboriginal Peak Body. What would you have to say about you know whether that's whether you could ever have seen that coming and, and what it means for young people, particularly young First Nations people, as future leaders? Yeah, I, I, I've probably been a, a bit of a leader at a local level, but not sort of in in the employment environment, and I, I never really necessarily aimed for for that uh, at higher level. Um, I've probably been lucky; I've been in the right place at the right time. Um, uh, for example, the the coming into housing back in the early '90s when they had uh, had those uh, serious issues uh, raised through the industry commission report and the John Mant report, and then being part of the team led by Elaine Sloan, who was the manager back then, and then uh, I didn't necessarily realise it was going to be happening at, at that time because it was just such a mess in there at the time. Uh, but then progressing it into the Office of Housing Policy, and then I started to realise, wow, this is this is uh, this, this is a great opportunity because uh, these people are talking about a lot more independence. Uh, back to that uh, workshop that Jennifer Westacott um, 
was involved with, um, uh, as well as um, you know, pe people like Mike Allen, who finished up the director general as well. That, those sort of people were around back then as, as as managers of the different regions and stuff, and they had a genuine commitment to to progress uh, self determination. Um, and so, I, I yeah, being at the right place at the right time and progressing with the um, the AHR legislation and then and then getting up up uh, in more senior positions and I just sort of kept progressing um, uh, in, in that role with the AHR and I moved to the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, which I hadn't mentioned earlier, to manage a housing and infrastructure program, um, an environmental health program and I went over there for a six-month secondment and I finished there in nearly seven years. I stayed there and then came back through the, the, the Department of Housing and my, I finished my... Um, public service career appropriately at the AHL. There you go. Quite a journey. That's been a very interesting, but a, a, a really pleasuring journey, I have to say. There's been ups and downs, but I have to say that, as I said, I've been I've been able to witness some some real progress, but it's very, it's very hard um, and our communities are still struggling. Oops. Ivan, thank you for sharing some of your journey with us today. It's been our, our pleasure, our privilege having you sharing the couch with us today. I know there's a lot of work still to be done, um, but it's great to see now we have a funded, incorporated national peak body uh, for Aboriginal housing in Australia. I know you've got some wonderful people that you're working with in your network, um, including Sky Thompson, who's up here as the CEO of Aboriginal Housing NT. I met some of your staff that you've put on at um, at Nats here, and I think the the future is, is is hopefully bright, and hopefully we'll we'll continue to see more progress in terms of you know providing real um, improvements in access for First Nations people to um, affordable and appropriate housing, and a return of control uh, to Aboriginal housing um, uh, into their own communities. So thank you so much for joining the. The program. I wasn't expecting to be talking about Bastille Day, but there you go. That's uh, that was quite fascinating. <laughs> um, Ivan, uh, you've been watching Ivan Simon. Ivan, thank you for joining us once again. Thank Ivan, you, Ivan Simon is the president of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Housing Association, or NATSIA. It's been an absolute pleasure having Ivan on our program today. And until next time, we wish you a very good day. You've been listening to Episode 8, Season 2 of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.